Hello and welcome to Hero with a Thousand Potions, a gaming podcast where two 30-something gamers examine the storytelling and gameplay of popular niche RPGs. It's like a book club with squads of rabbit people, land surveyors that are also functionally an ultimate attack. This is the final episode of season one, and we are talking about Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition. My name is Tyler. And I am Nate. You're invited to join us on this adventure by playing Xenoblade alongside these episodes where we'll play and discuss and analyze the storytelling and gameplay chapter by chapter. Tonight, we're talking about Future Connected. Uh, Nate, you're sounding healthier tonight, but are you feeling healthier? I took a COVID test yesterday, if that answers that question. Uh, I don't know if it does, does it? I am not COVID positive, but I feel like I am. <laughs> yeah, we've been unwell lately, and I think you more than myself. Yeah, I looked on the, like, uh, there's a map of the severity and number of cases with, like, flu and, uh, is it RSV or whatever it is? It's like a grayscale map and virginia is just like pitch black it's laminated it's got a a little bit of a sheen to it so did you have rsv no i don't i really don't know what i had but i just wanted to make sure it wasn't covid i'm getting through it but you may find this in the future if your kid ever goes to like a official daycare or a school or something you're just going to be sick all the time because they're going to grab every disease out there and bring it home to you and then they're gonna they're gonna have like their macaroni on their fork and then just shove it right in your face and put it in your mouth and it's the same fork that their saliva was just all over so you're gonna get sick gonna get sick ella just had meat for the first time tonight she had little baby food turkey nice yeah yeah she turned seven months on tuesday Oof, that's crazy crazy so did you take the the first food pick when we did the first baby food we did that and we and we're taking occasional pictures too but we didn't do the ceremonial first bite of meat gotcha yeah no she's doing great i'm gonna have to make a large correction to something you said in the intro Uh uh-huh we encourage you to follow along with us only if you have xenoblade chronicles definitive edition for the switch you cannot follow along with us if you've been playing on the wii unfortunately because this is a special bonus chapter that's true it's a bonus chapter it's a bonus episode from the podcast here only available in the definitive edition re-release and it kind of begs the question like why did they do this i mean we it's it's like a 15 or 20 hours long and has new characters has a new environment has new antagonists and new characters some new some old uh, new playable characters even and it begs the question like why does this even exist and i did a little research on it and it sounds like you know monolith soft team takahashi here they weren't very satisfied with melia's arc because she was very morose, I don't know if morose is right, but uh, melancholy about um, the turn of events, how um, the cataclysmic end of the Hyentia race, or I don't know how much it was the end, but you know what I mean. She's fallen from grace, and the Hyentias are kind of dispersed across the world, although the world has been completely remade, (laughs) right? And so what I saw in the research I did was that we weren't done with Melia. We have more we want to say about Melia, and that's what Future Connected is. Definitely. Without doing research, I had two bullet points in my head how to answer that question. And one of them was we heavily discussed how Melia really was like probably the most side character of them all, maybe next to Riki, but Riki was like a comic relief side character. Mm-hmm. Whereas Melia was just didn't have development after a certain point in the game. Like 
once Fiora showed up, she was kind of a sideline character for the most part. I also pointed out how the rest of her development happened in the heart to heart. So for me, it was kind of like Melia just totally got shafted at the end of the the mainline game oh and there's also that effect that i talked about in the uh along the lifespan of our podcast where melia kept like being told that she was gonna ascend the throne and never actually did like right well there's a test and then there's a ceremony and we're gonna announce a crazy masked lady in front of thousands of cheering hyantia then the war started and the place blew up and there's a a army being forged and everything and she's got to go off and live with the homs in order to experience their way of life to form a better alliance and everything it's like she never actually got to do what she was supposed to do in throughout the entire game so without doing any research definitely felt that what you're explaining there of like takahashi could feel like yeah i didn't really get the opportunity to wrap up those threads i've got a quote here so according to uh, an issue of famitsu magazine that came out on in may of 2020 uh this is a direct quote from uh, tetsuya takahashi here about the concept of future connected and i quote here it's because we felt bad about melia i'm only half joking when i say that with future connected we're able to draw in those who have already played xenoblade chronicles moreover there's details there that connect to the future of Xenoblade. So we created it for two and a half reasons. Another rationale being we had an unused map from the main game, the Bionis Shoulder, which was appropriate for the setting. Oh, gotcha. So I said I, I kind of had two uh, reasons in my head, and the other one was I was playing this on stream, and we had a, a viewer who each time like a little tidbit of information would be dropped, like the Fog King would show up that viewer would uh, essentially be like oh my gosh that's such a spoiler showing showing this villain like this and i'm sitting there completely oblivious like i I don't have any idea who the hell this guy is but it seemed like from the feedback of players who have played the rest of the xenoblade series there are some connections that kind of link this game to later entries no shit well it wasn't very obvious to me as a someone going and kind of of blind or as blind as you can be after completing the main game once we get into it here there isn't a lot of like there's explanation but there isn't setup for who or what we're really dealing with here mm-hmm. apparently people who've played the whole series have quite a bit more information on that fascinating should we get right into this nate yeah let's go let's go okay so future connected is in the main title screen of options that you select, you know, new game, continue, all that nonsense. But when you select Future Connected, the subtitle screen shows a new kind of backdrop. Like, we've all seen the sword in the field, or the conventional game, but for Future Connected, the subtitle screen is a chunk of rocky cliff floating above passing clouds, very calmly, very serenely. And then we can see Alchemoth in the distance, too. It's not very obvious what we're looking at, because we're at a low angle, we're looking up at this rocky precipice, and then, then we recognize Alchemoth. That's, that's an easy one. But anyways, that's how it sort of begins. Then we see Future Connected. You want to start? We start here. And you hit New Game, and we immediately go back to a flashback of Shulk killing Super Zanza. See the Monado slice through Zanza's battle body. And then once that happens, we flash back again to the epilogue in which Melia shares her melancholic comments. Fiora asks Melia, you know, what, what are you looking at? As she's kind of looking out over uh, over the, the, the lake that appeared in the new reality by the new variation of Colony, Colony 9 or whatever that <laughs> new destination is. Uh, she says, I'm not looking at anything in particular. I'm just thinking of the future that awaits. One year later, we see Junks flying across the sky. Shulk is driving it via orange hollow consoles, and we fly up to a floating island and we see Alchemoth in the distance. 
Chalk's driving, and Melly is there, and it's not very obvious if anybody else is here. Right now, it just seems like it's Chalk and Melia. And as we're headed towards Alchemoth, our destination, Alchemoth itself, or something like that, it isn't very obvious in this moment, shoots a black laser at Junks, and we crash land on the floating island. Melia, we're inside of Alchemoth. All right, I'm on my way. The game tells us it's a black laser. It's clearly orange to me, or at least I'm using like a hacked switch or something. It was more orange than it was black to me. Okay, I just wondered, am I colorblind? Am I going nuts here? It was a goddamn Halloween laser. Perfect. For sure. The Halloween laser, that's what we're going to call it. This floating island, the shoulder, uh, the unused map, as we heard earlier, there's a little bit of establishing details that essentially Bionis had some anti-gravity stones embedded in himself. This was explained later in the chapter, but I'm just going to drop it here because this is a giant floating island, and in every RPG, you need a good floating island that the heroes kind of rush off to for a side adventure. Mm. There were a fair number of things floating in the air of the sea, so those were those are like floating islets, but here we have our like first big floating continent that we deserve in a role-playing game here. Nate, what's your favorite floating island in an RPG? Final Fantasy twelve. what is the name of it? Is it... Oh, uh, Bur... Bajerba? Uh, let me look it up. I think it's Bajerba. You're, you're right. I was going to say Burmacia, but I think that's Final Fantasy IX. I hate to go to another Final Fantasy, but I was thinking the um, floating continent in FF6 in the showdown before the first half of the game closes up. Okay, yes, it is Bujerba. And the reason that's my favorite is because I believe that has the undead mines where I spent a good 20 hours grinding my characters in the original iteration of Final Fantasy 12 in which grinding mattered. If you don't like grinding, then don't play the original Final Fantasy 12. Play the Zodiac Age where essentially they removed the need to grind in the game because the pacing and progression of characters is so much better. Anyway, that's probably my favorite floating island. Also, you get Vaughn running around the town yelling, I'm Captain Bosch! I'm Bosch von Ronsenberg! I'm Captain Bosch von Ronsenberg of Dalmasca! <laughs> so that's another reason that that one is great. That certainly qualifies as a clamor. After we crash, we're okay. And there are a variety of establishing shots of this environment we're on. The Bionis shoulder looks an awful lot like the Bionis knee, Gower Plains. It's bucolic, green grass, verdant cliffs, blue sky, quaint still ponds, a couple caves, some highlands areas. Anyways, in the establishing shots, we see small animals race around on the ground, wolves, foxes, or uh, hoxes, ponios, the wildebeest type of guys. What, what are those? Ant, not antols. Ardens. And then we see flying animals, too. We get non-threatening telethia flying through the horizon as well. Also, when we first enter the zone, we get the typical intro graphic when you've entered a zone, but it starts off as a graphic of an intact Bionis body showing us on the Bionis shoulder, but then it glows, vibrates, is broken apart, and we see uh, the remaining biography that we stand upon. Oh my god. With that uh, broken down Bionis in the kind of like base level, what, what we would believe to be the sea, crumpled down as we saw in the ending of the last game. So they kind of illustrate where this was before the recreation and after. I don't remember that. That's awesome. Junks is 
so damaged it cannot fly. We have taken heavy, heavy damage. And, uh, but Shulk, the engineer that he is, supposes that Alchemoth should have the rare parts. And we suspect that we can cross the Bayana shoulder to get to a teleporter that'll take us to Alchemoth to scrap for the right parts, I guess. However, Melia isn't super interested in coming back to Alchemoth. Makes you wonder why we're even on this trip in the first place. You know, it's just always super convenient that everything you need is within arm's length for repairing your ship because this is a Machina ship and the High Entia wouldn't necessarily be using Machina technology to create their home unless the creation of Alchemoth predates like the, the schism and the Machina made Alchemoth for the High Entia. I don't know. You would think that those uh, like mechanical parts would not be compatible in any way if they were from two completely different cultures of technology. But hey, that's how video games work. The, the thing you need to fix your problem is always right in the zone you're already in for the most part. As we get a good look at Shulk, he has a new makeshift Monado on his back. So uh, the God Nado, as I call it, yes. uh, is nowhere to be found. Who knows where he put that thing when he was done with it. I have it in my new game plus, so obviously it's out there time traveling somewhere. He made his own new Monado, and it's kind of like a more steampunky than the original Monado design. It's almost like a hot rod. It's got exhaust pipes. Yes, it does. And it, it kind of lets out little jets of fire when it... I don't know if is it revving does it have we heard any noises come out of it in that respect sure why not i don't remember hearing it it's called the monado replica ex it's got three gem slots and, a, and speaking of equipment shulk is also wearing a helm called noise suppressor that has a lock on resist rank 2 gem on it shulk and melia their outfits too are a little different than what we're used to in the default outfits of the original game but they are stylistically similar and retain the same color scheme yeah, except they're like a thousand times better. Gone is the era of RPG heroes wearing knit sweaters as their battle armor. I'm looking at you, Cloud Strife, Zach Fair, wearing a, a knit sweater with the turtleneck folded over. Uh, Shulk, Shulk was doing the same thing. It looks like he was, that got knit for him by his grandma or something throughout the main campaign. So now he's wearing some actual cool, looks like breathable battle wear. You can actually uh, set the helm appearance to have the hood up as well which i immediately did for the entire duration of this playthrough he's a little punk now hell yeah <laughs> hell yeah i didn't do that melia is also sporting a staff called a world ender it has one slot but we have no gens to slot into it so we hear the hollering of no pond there are two no ponds one's colored red one's colored green and they're shooting at wolves well one of them shooting at wolves with some sort of projectile weapon they seem kind of cornered and, th and then the game gives us this prompt to tell us that some things in future connected are very different from the original game and those highlights include chain attacks are replaced with performing all-out attacks shulk has lost power to see visions haha -ha. there are new battle behaviors the skill tree Game feature has been removed, and then there are, quote, more changes to be announced as they come up. And we'll talk about those as they, of course, as they do come up. Right, so we assist these little jokers. They join the party. Kino and Nene, that's K-I-N-O and N-E-N-E. -E. Those are their proper names. Kino and Nene. Kino's the one with the projectile weapon. He's got a staff called a husk shooter, and it fires projectiles. Now, it's, he's like an analog of Charla and has like Charla skills, but his weapon is a stalk of a plant that fires 
projectiles from it. Right, he's a lime green colored nopon with a yellow lotus spreading atop his head. He's got a purple weapon holder against his back, wears a tunic of purple with turquoise highlights. The My Little Pony cutie mark on his belly takes the shape of three brown crescents. And Nene is the pink nopon, female. Kino's male, by the way. Nene is the pink nopon. She wears two red bow ties that tie off into two perky blonde ponytails. And she wields a golden club, very much like Ricky does, and wears a red armored jacket with white trimming and bears a round iron plate on her belly. She's a warrior, Nate. She's a warrior. And when you closely inspect their abilities after joining the party, you notice that they're basically Sharla and Ryan. In a cutscene, uh, Shulk says that, actually. He kind of, he says, wow, it's just like watching Sharla uh, and Ryan fight. It was like seeing Ryan and Sharla fighting together again. Uh, that blew past me the first time. I only, I only picked up on like what the meaning of that sentence was in my, in my review before we got together here. So uh, we're wondering, how are these two little Nopon here? And Shulk kind of postulates that they are stowaways, that they were on the junks the whole time. And they admit that, yes, that is the case because we recognize them as Riki's children. Children of Hiropon Riki's household. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we could go on a big recap of like the two, three cutscenes we watched to get the information. Or I could just say they stowed away because they wanted to be Hiropon as well. And they knew that Shulk, wherever he went, that's where the adventure is. Because that's what daddy said. <laughs> Does that adequately encapsulate? That adequately encapsulates it. I think that's fine. Oh, one more thing. Kino is an adopted son of Ricky's. He was not born into the family, and so he feels indebted to the Ricky Hiropon household to bring honor to the household that has raised him as if he were one of their own. Honor Pon. He wants to be an Honor Pon, Nate. Hmm. It's so funny that, like, Ricky started out as this joke character that the people of Frontier Village were trying to pawn off on us to get rid of him, but now he's this total badass that has like created legends. Yes. I feel the same way about him too. I'll talk a little bit more about Riki as we get into this. Right, so we band together. We have four party members. You can only have three at a time. Of course, um, we've, we've determined that well, Shulk is going to have Shulk's toolkit. Smelly is going to be the caster type. Ricky's going to be... Ricky. Nene is going to be the a tank or a, a sort of beefcake hero. And then of course, Kino's gonna be perhaps our healer. And Shulk leans into Meli and says, we could probably use the help um, to help, you know, recover parts anyways. And so we're off. Now we're off on the adventure. Where do we go first? Shulk points out to something in the distance and we go to the Cape of the Shoulder. We can assume that this is the edge of the zone because we don't crash at the edge. We kind of crash in a, into a pond in a more larger flat area, not exactly in the center of the zone, but center enough such that there aren't, you know, colossal drop-offs nearby. Yeah, if you look at the overall map of the zone, it's a little more detailed than I'm about to say, but basically it's a crescent if the mm. if the curve was facing upwards where the cape is on the bottom left of the crescent the big major town where everyone hangs out is on the bottom right of the crescent and then at the upper tip is kind of where alchemoth is situated now that's not 100 percent accurate but that's the easiest way i can explain it over a podcast nate i found it pretty interesting that when we do take control of our heroes and we head off to companions cape we default control to melia not to shulk sounds like that's that takahashi influence there that i didn't i didn't know that that was his quote but it makes sense now that he's wanting to kind of put her in the spotlight 
Mm. The problem is, is I really don't like playing as Melia at all. I did. I played Melia the whole time. I got my I got my uh, rotation down. Okay. I'm real good now. Last thing I'll say before we head out to Companions Cape here that the so we've established that the arts analogs of Nene and Kino are comparable to Sharla and Ryan, but the names of the arts themselves are these silly Nopon cartoon character sort of rename variations of the more I don't know brutal Hom like regular names and i just kind of want kind of want to run by like the entire arts list of everybody so kino his his uh arts list includes names like healy bullet heal kaboom heal round around cure thingamy curity pure round shield kaklang healy counter toasty hot bullet aurora bullet crackle bullet tranquil snooze yogurt stance boost little blast Egg shaker and noggin shot. Uh, the centerpiece art, like in the in the middle, like the 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 trait art, is called doze off, and it is functionally similar to Charlotte's um, cooldown ability. Oh, got hold on, is that why he keeps telling me he's about to fall asleep? Does that mean his doze off is happening at that time? Yes. Okay, I was getting pissed of him talking about that so much. I'm like, you're fighting the last boss of the game. Don't fall asleep, dumbass. Don't fall asleep, dude. But I didn't actually play as him, so I didn't realize that that was the mechanic. So thank you for that information. Yeah, you bet. Nene's arts kit includes names like Hammerbeat, Bone Upper, which is actually the same as Ryan's, Chive Sobat, Feather Swing, Sword Drive, also familiar, Lariat, also familiar, Mild Down, Shield Curse Smash, Hangry, Engage, Berserker, Last Stand, Anchor Chain, Aura Toast, Guard Shift, and Magnum Starch. And the trait art in the center of the skill bar is called Glad Taunt, and it is functionally like Ryan's taunt. And you're kind of highlighting something here about the amount of this episode that is spent with two Nopon talking to each other is quite higher than you would have experienced in the main game. Usually it's R Riki interacting with other Homs and talking Riki speak, and then you get a break from that with other people speaking. But there are some stretches here where you're just in completely immersed in Nopon speak, and it becomes exhausting. <laughs> and you know that by the end of the game, I became a Riki fan, but there was some times I was struggling with this, like, oh my god, stop. Yeah, yeah. The battle speech where they talk about whether they can have cuddles or not. I wanted to die every time. I wanted to reach for my remote and mute it because it was so pathetic and I hated it. And that may make me sound a little like, I don't know what the word is. Like you hate cuddles? Yeah, like it makes me sound like a bad person, but it's like I'm a cuddle fiend IRL, but I still don't talk about it that way. This guy, cuddle fiend Nate. When 50% of your playable characters are these chibi voice actors, it, it and, and if you're not in love with that, because I know there are people that are, then it might grate on you. And to an extent, it did for me as well. Now, alternatively, as we go down the road here, there's going to be a dozen more Nopon we add to the cast, right? Oh boy, yes. And I actually weren't, wasn't bothered by the majority of the text that they provided. They were kind of funny and entertaining, but... This dynamic between Kino and Nene, no good. So we cross the Navir Highland to get to this destination that Shulk pointed out. There are bunnets, ragwools, hawkses, ardens, 
along the way. And then we get to this place called Companion's Cape. It is a high Entia community, but they're not living in any glorious, polished white citadels that float in the sky. This is like a rundown village. I mean, it's not especially distressed and ruinous, but it is not a glorious uh, capital in the same way that it was in Alchemoth. We're met by Maxis, a black Hyentia. We explain our situation to him. He's got... <laughs> Maxis has a mustache and I love it. He's a pretty relaxed and easygoing guy, smart and cautious, quasi-leader of this village called Companions Cape. Uh, like I said, we explain our situation to him and he says, steer clear of Alchemoth. There's a monster called the Fog King that's occupied the Citadel now and he's occupied over the last few months, and he cannot be killed. It is like fighting smoke. The folks at the Companion's Cave tried fighting it, but were repelled. They felt bad and were all exiled from Alchemoth. But the gang wants to know how to get inside. And Maxis says, forget it, let it go. He's a punished Maxis. What's that? I don't know, it's like an internet joke. Uh, the I'll quick explain it. It's uh, the Metal Gear series has Snake. In Metal Gear Solid 5, the snake is the main character is just like completely beat down and has lost all hope for his oh. mission and everything. So mm. his code name is Punished Snake. Mm. The internet kind of refers to anyone by that character name as Punished Whatever. So I said he's Punished Maxis. He's been beaten down and he's ready to give up the fight. He has no reason to move forward other than to just survive. Right, yeah. And that's kind of the tone uh, that we take uh, among most of the other folks here that live in the Companions Cape, with the exception of another character we meet. This is a new character. He shows up. His name is Galegar, another high Entia in vibrant black and purple robes. He recognizes Melia as the Empress, and he's thrilled the Half-Bloods have come back to the Bayana shoulder to take over Alchemoth. And he seems very, very eager to help us, and he is extremely smiley and extremely agreeable. I mean, his default facial expression is these, like, uwu, upward-turned, like, like, the happy... He's got resting uwu face. Yeah, or another way to think of it, uh, there's a term coined by Tyra Banks in the America's Next Top Model series. It's called smizing. It's smiling with your eyes. And so you create this like snatched look on your face in which your, uh, your eyes are creating a, like the shape of a smile. I don't know how to do it, but it's apparently it's a real thing that models do. So uh, he's he's smizing at us. I also immediately knew he was a villain because of the fact that his uh, his clothes had the purple Tron lights instead of the regular blue ones. Mm. No good guy would wear purple Tron lights. So I was on stream and I was talking about this guy. And as soon as he walked in, and I saw those eyes. I said, you know, about halfway through, this guy's going to betray us. And um, when he opens his eyes, he's going to have tiny, beady little pupils. <laughs> and um, we'll we'll see if that's what happens. I mean, again, we're one-shotting this, so we will get the answer to that postulation. But it's documented on Twitch that I had that observation as soon as I saw him. Nicely done, Nate. Galgar calls himself a servant of the Empress, and he offers to join us on our adventure to get to Alchemoth. If it not displease my ladyship too grossly, may I offer you my companionship on your journey? I have a modicum of skill with the blade. Please rest assured. I appreciate the offer, but must refuse. After all, there is a transporter to Alchemoth across the zone that is activatable by a royal blood. This is easy, he says. Although Maxis is saying, forget about going to Alchemoth, Gilgar has the complete opposite conversation with us. It is easy to get to Alchemoth with Half-Blood. 
Anyways, we turned down his offer to fight alongside us because, um, well, I, I forget what I know. What is it? So during our conversation with him, he talks with disdain for the high anti of pure bloods mm. and adds how he sees it as the half bloods responsibility to carry on the high anti line. And Melia actually scolds him for this. So that he's not respecting their ancestors. And so he's kind of already to a, off to a bad start with her. The rest of the party and the, the Nopon kids think he's great and he's a new friend, yay. But now that you pointed out, you know, Melia is our party leader, so to speak, even though I've got Shulk in the driver's seat, narratively, she would be the one to kind of, that, that bad taste in her mouth is probably the reason why we turned him down, don't you think? He besmirches Machina as, as a whole. He's, he has a racist comment, I guess, and Melia rebuffs him on that as well. It's weird to, to say this. He's a half-blood purist. Kind of an oxymoron there. As the conversation ends, Gilgar tells us that the access to the teleporter is through uh, the Kragmaw Canyons to the east. And then when the scene ends, the whole group turn around and leave the village as if I, the player, I have no interest in visiting the village's shops and chew the fat with the locals. But I do, Nate. I do want to go and check out the village's shops and speak with the locals. When I do, we get a prompt that says that armor no longer drops from monsters and that quests will give money and equipment. Stead. Yeah, that little prompt would be the bane of my existence for several hours. Yeah, you told me about that. And I was like, I got it that the prompt didn't drop armor, right? Mm. So it's it says your quests are where you're going to get your gear. So I'm like, all right, let's do these quests. Let's hit up the quest. I did not think to check the shop for better gear because one, I'm an idiot. And two, in the main game, I also didn't check shops for gear after about the first 10 hours because everything they had was always worse than what was dropping off monsters. So for me, the, the trade-off was, okay, no more gear on monsters, go do quests. Well, I'm getting my ass kicked in these quests. And it wasn't until like halfway through, I want to say, where I was just getting dumpstered by bosses like two levels under me. I was like, something's wrong. I don't know what's going on. And I go to a shop and like there's a weapon that's like plus 230 damage. <laughs> and there's armor that's like 47 defense. And I was like, yeah, okay. I know that they said this earlier, but I really thought there was... Like the gear you get from quests is the same as the starter gear. It just has a gem on it. So you're getting no additional defense, no additional attack from any of the stuff you get from quests. It's almost like it's just cosmetic uh, unlocks for the most part. So I was sucking for quite a while. I'm glad you got back on the wagon eventually. Yeah, I eventually figured it out by just sheer what the hell is going on attitude. We got a lot of side quests to do here and you know how I love doing side quests, but there's one I'm gonna talk about. It's a side quest designed to teach me that ether deposits don't give materials anymore. They just straight up give you gems. Mm. And uh, so there's no more gem forging. That's a pretty major design change as well. It's just pull the gem out of the stone. Cool, but it's like making this a quest that has to teach you that instead of you just kind of like running up to click something and saying, hey, guess what? You just have the gem now. They make it a quest and it's something that I don't I don't know what started this trend. What was the first game to kind of embrace this? But it reminds me of playing Final Fantasy 14 where you can't just like learn something or be introduced to a feature in the menu or in a tutorial. You have to do a quest where an NPC tells you the history on how this came to be or how, 
like trains you on how to interact with a certain feature of the game. Even though like in the original game, we just walked up to nodes and harvest materials and it was like, hey, you can use this to craft stuff. Cool, right? All right, see ya, you know? And uh, that was just uh, one of those little things where it's like, you can tell that this was definitely made 10 years after the original and how they, they felt the need to kind of hold your hand through that whole process. Although it is so much simpler than it was earlier or in, in the previous game. Yeah, it's infinitely easier but like four times the explanation. So we embark eastward to the teleporter that Gilgar describes, but before we get through the caverns, uh, we're waylaid by a Nopon inspector who is our introduction to a series of quests. There are 12 Nopon inspectors. I mean, pawn specters in this zone and each will have a quest for us and they will each join our adventure when we complete the quest. They're not party members per se, but they do trace amounts of damage in battle and then that blue power bar that allows you to do the tri-track in the original game, it's replaced by inspector powers called union strikes. There are three of them and you get to pick one when you choose to uh, use one at all. One deals damage, one forces the dazed debuff on, on uh, your targets and the other is a defensive skill. Each involve quick time button pushes and the number of inspectors you have with you boosts these abilities powers yeah and as you get more of these guys not only does the attack become more powerful but also the speech they give during the attack becomes more unintelligible as 12 of them are screaming it all at once and it just becomes a cacophony of sound <laughs> The layers of chibi nopon talk are compounding upon each other as this chapter plays out. Give me Xenoblade Chronicles N, where it's just all nopon all the time. Just all of these little Furbies blasting away full speed. Because once I had 14 of them trailing behind me, I was like, okay, I'm all in. I'm totally invested in this. And then this is a kind of a funny side note. Each of these pawn specters have names that sound like numbers or at least their Latin roots. I'm going to run them all by you right now. 1-1, one, one, who is the chief? 2-2, two, two, Dry Dry, Fo, Fora, Faifa, Pek Asa, Set Set, Tei Tei, Nonona, Deca Deca, Tentu, and Evelyn. Next thing we learn, heart-to-hearts are replaced by quiet moments, most of which last too effing long. I don't know. It kind of stops the adventure dead. Although, and I think most of them are not very relevant. They're just kind of colorful conversations between um, our our heroes. However, there are a few in which I either like laughed out loud or or did shed some really good characterization uh, on, on on some people. And when we get to those, I'll, I'll point them out. Or do you want to do them one by one, or do we just want to address quiet moments now? Because I slammed them all at the end. You slammed them all at the end. Yeah, I did. I did them as I, as I cross, as I came across them. Yeah, I watched the one about the eating flowers, and I was like, I can't, I can't do this. So I did them all at the final session, laying on my floor with a pillow under my head, in case I felt like falling asleep. The, these are quiet moments because they are the put me to sleep moments for sure. <laughs> the primary issue that I have with these is that we're hanging out and talking with uh, plush toy children. Each of the quiet moments kind of devolves into adults talking to children and explaining basic concepts to them. So we have like one of them is Shulk has to explain that people having a disagreement isn't fighting to Nene. She thinks like, oh, you had a fight and it's like, no, we just don't agree on a certain point. That's like something you explain to your child when you're having a little bit of a disagreement with your partner. 
you know, hey, we're, we're not fighting. We're just, we disagree. Melia explains how running away from your parents worries them. And then it doesn't sink in. And she mentions like three to four times that she's not explaining it right and tries again. Melia also has to explain mixed families and mentions that it's too complicated to explain. It's also the second time in this uh, DLC that we're going to go over the topic of mixed families. There's another child in the game that needs to ex be explained how Melia's family works. Hmm. And I'm not one of those people that it's like Star Wars should be made for the 35 year olds that are watching it. But also, I don't think that three year olds are playing Future Connected. So I think they needed to raise the bar a little bit here on the narrative content they were presenting to us in these. Farther east, uh, we discover a landmark called the Sky Bridge, which has a lonely stone house looking over a cliff. And there is a simple wooden fence barring the way through. And I'm sure we're going to come back to this later. I will be right. Above Baruth Ruins Cave is a highlands called Pilar Knoll, which has colossal bleached rib bones embedded in the earth. And I feel like a Hinox from Breath of the Wild should be sleeping in the center of it. <laughs> We uh, enter Alchemoth to confront the Fog King, as he's been named by others. Upon arrival, we see a derelict nation. It's dark and dreary, at least more so than re we remember it being. Massive piles of shattered glass from the ceiling dome of the city litter the ground. Trees are overgrown. I don't know if there's more foliage just because in the DLC they saw fit to add it or because like in the addition that this is now a new production and not just a recreation of a previous zone, but definitely looks like the place is overgrown regardless. And uh, the escalator up to the center of the town is non-functional. So we just have to hoof it everywhere instead of lazily ride upon it. But as we start to look around the place, um, we hear a cry of somebody in distress. Racing up that non-functioning escalator, we find Teelin cowering below a giant shadowy bird, kind of like a anti-phoenix or something, if that description helps. Nice. They recognize each other. This was the boy I helped in the main game with collecting research on turning Telethia back into High Entia somehow. His quest took us into that hidden lab in the Emperor's Tomb where we once saw Alvis and Lorithia plotting while staring at a Bionis Blast spear. Oh, was that it? Okay. Yeah, so he was in the original game. He's not like a wholly new character. Um, but that was one thing about doing quests in the main game was there was never like a an interface where you got to see people's faces or you saw them talking to each other. People with side quests, you might not even know what the hell they look like because they're tiny little avatars on the map that you're zoomed out on. So... I didn't know what Teelan looked like. I didn't recognize him, but my characters did. We start the fight with the uh, Shadow Bird to save Teelan. So the first thing I'll uh, say about this fight, the the Shadow Bird, the Anti-Phoenix, it is called a Snowl Talos. Talos? I don't know. Did we encounter one of these things before? Does that name sound familiar? Is this like a... It looked like a Rogul, one of those large harpy eagles that we saw in Satoral Marsh and okay. probably other places. But they weren't dark and smoking yeah it's like a corrupted version of something we've already seen and then also I'll say that the song that starts playing absolutely kicks ass it's called fog beast battle and i'm in love with it reminds me of a japanese band i love called sukekio particularly there's a track called junboku muku de aruga 
So um, go Google them and see if you like their music, if you like this song. Cool, I'll check that out. The fight is nothing too special except for the fact that I suck and I have no gear and my characters are terrible because I don't know what's going on. But I do manage to take down the, the, the bird anyway. This fight takes place at the entrance of the Citadel and just a little bit above it is a shining, burning red rift with black smoke rolling off of it. Yes, and that rift, once we've felled the beast we think hey we we uh we did it we we killed the fog king it was this big shadow bird and uh no that rift erupts above the corpse and fires that same beam that took down junks a halloween laser yeah again very orange <laughs> i am i'm confirmed <laughs> in my suspicions that very orange near the rift there's a, an eruption of energy and a, a big old titanic golem of black stuff and ps3 era ripple effects stomps his way out of it and this is the actual fog king this is where a viewer in my stream who's played the rest of the xenoblade series says this dude is a big old spoiler but the hell if i know yeah we don't know that and we're, we're not being facetious there i literally have touched no other xenoblade content except for some big booby ladies in super smash brothers as the only other information I have about the Xenoblade series at large. Anyway, in light of the um, giant Fog King attacking us now, Melia tries to blast him with one of her signature holy beams. The ones that used to require her to like absorb dead bodies around her in order to use it. She's upgraded to just being able to use it anytime she likes now, feasibly. Am I correct in that? So that blast goes right through him in addition to other attacks from the party and it's confirming what maxis told us that there's just no hope of even damaging this thing it's a phantom in all respects so the party retreats back to shoulder Teelan says we shouldn't have to worry about it following us because the telethia flying around alchemoth keep the fog beast beings of all varieties kind of imprisoned within Alchemoth itself. And we'll learn why that is later, but we should be safe for now. He's not gonna like fly out and follow us to where we are. And Teal invites us back to his uh, research cabin, the aforementioned little shack that you visited earlier. And that is our next objective. While we're there, I think it might've been Beforehand, uh, Melia acknowledges that Tulin's mother was transformed into a Telethian, so she feels a little bit of uh, kinship uh, with Tulin about that. Uh, Tulin, by the way, he's like 10 years old and a scientific savant, by the way. He speaks with tremendous authority on the research that he's doing, and he's just a little kid, very mature for his age. Pretty good voice actor, too, for him, actually. I was quite, quite pleased with that. Or maybe I'm just been beat up by chibi no pawn chatter uh, up until then so why was Teelan there in alchemoth he said he had special permission to research how to transform telethia back into high entias like you said he invites us to join him to visit his lab galgar is watching us at a distance and he muses to himself that we are fools for trying to second guess the will of the divine thrice damned fools they think to second guess the will of the divine yeah when galgar says the divine i have to wonder who the hell he means at this point because mm. by all intents and purposes that's shulk so you should just listen to shulk a god that does not want to be a god there is nobody left in the in the god sphere we've killed all the gods so at the lab we learn that tyria is here and she's good now quote unquote good she's still a sassy pants but she's like she she's behaving like she's 
Teelan's older sister, although they are not related by blood. Teelan calls her big sis by name, and she is not his big sis. And then there's conversations later where maybe Tyria is Melia's big sis, and no, she is not. Melia flashes back to their showdown at the High Entia tomb, and we get to see her expressionless mask one more time. Melia recognizes Tyria and Teelan both lost their moms to the High Entia transformation and have a shared interest in Teelan's reverse mutation research. In a private moment later, Tyria will say that she survived the events of Xenoblade and looked for a place to die. Melia and Tyria kind of have like a private conversation in the midst of... They, they go outside and have a conversation after all the Thielen fallout has been discussed and straightened out and Tyria starts kind of cold like you said she was talking about how she was looking for a place to die and really didn't have a purpose or whatever so it seems like that indoctrination of her mother is still running deep in her but Melia comments that she believes that Tyria has in fact changed due to Thielen and a little boy wouldn't call a cold thoughtless assassin sis so obviously there's some warmth to her in there somewhere and they, they kind of explain, you know, her whole process of saving him and everything. But what it comes out of that is um, Tyria says, quote, I hope to see this future you'll build for us and what I am. So this will come up later in quiet moments where they kind of finally resolve their differences. But uh, this is kind of the first step on the path of reconciliation for Tyria and Melia here. Cool. And then we we have a uh, we have creepo dude watching on he is uh happy to hear that melia is ready to lead he's going to quote clear the stones from her path unquote and knowing that he's a racist that's going to be the pure high entia like tyria and Tilin. I would believe. Due to his creeping around we get a sense that he and melia slash tyria's application of the word lead is going to be different to the point of conflict. Like, I can already tell. Yes. At this point. Hey, gang. As is usual, Tyler and I could not shut up about this episode. We recorded a lot of audio. That means we're going to slice this into two to make it a little bit more digestible. We're going to call it here and pick up right where we left off next time. Look forward to that. As always, have a good one. Peace out. Ah!